This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. To an outsider, it could look like not much has happened at the state capitol since lawmakers reconvened more than two months ago. Virtually every major bill is on hold pending two key things. We're going to find out what they are from Ed Sealover, who covers the legislature for the Denver Business Journal. Also joining us, Peter Marcus of the Durango Herald. They join us at the session's halfway mark. Gentlemen, welcome. And Ed, what are the two things that everyone is waiting for that uh, seems to keep all of these bills in limbo? Well, the first thing is Friday's uh, revenue forecast that will be coming out. Uh, The reason this is important is it's going to tell legislators exactly how much better or worse budget projections are looking than three months ago uh, when they were projected to have several hundred million dollars worth in uh, deficit from what they wanted to spend to what they could be spending next year. Now, the, there's optimism, and there have been a number of measures that have kind of cut down that deficit already to about $64 million, uh, but they're waiting to see if it gets closed anymore or if they're still looking at trying to close a big gap. The second thing that everybody is waiting for that is also tied to that is the March 28th, the scheduled March 28th introduction of the budget. This is going to let them know, hey, if, if we have a program that we really want to run a bill on, something we've been waiting for, something we've been holding back on, is there any money in there, or should we just give up preliminarily and not introduce that bill? All right. So budgetary concerns there. And of course, we have to talk about the hospital provider fee, Ed. Yes, the hospital provider fee, the quick uh, look at this is that it is a fee that hospitals charge upon themselves uh, for every night that people spend in their beds, uh, and they take the revenues from that and match it with federal revenues and bring in uh, somewhere around $1.2 billion a year. Now, the trick is about half of that money counts against the Tabor revenue cap, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights revenue cap, limiting how much they can take in. And the closer they get to exceeding the Tabor cap and giving back uh, refunds, the closer they get to having no funding for transportation and reduced funding for higher education in the budget next year. This hospital provider fee has allowed the state to expand Medicaid, particularly for children. Uh, The governor and Democrats want to reclassify this so that it doesn't count against Tabor. But Republicans are not so hot about this idea. Ed, you reported yesterday that there may be a way Senate President Bill Cadman, who's a Republican and who has blocked the hospital provider fee reclassification thus far, might agree to it. Uh, What happened? Well, what happened is that Cadman has said that he would be okay at looking at this if uh, the money that now is raised by the fee is taken out of the Tabor baseline amount, basically, you know, so the cash would be lowered in conjunction with the amount that is taken out of the budget and reclassified as an enterprise fund. However, House Speaker Dickie Lee Hollinghorse says this is a no-go. This would actually make it even tougher uh, to fund higher ed and transportation uh, than her plan, which is just taking it out and keeping the cap where it is. Okay, to break through a little bit of the legislative jargon there, it means that uh, Senate President Bill Cadman wants to ensure a way to keep government small if he agrees to reclassify the hospital provider fee, but that's a no-go for the Democratic Speaker of the House. Boy, that that actually did break through pretty well there. (laughs) 
Okay, well, I'm glad. Let's bring uh, Peter Marcus into the conversation again with the Durango Herald. He also covers the legislature. Peter, is it just the hospital provider fee and budgetary questions that are, I don't know, slowing things down at the Capitol? Or do you think election year politics also play into this? Um, Well, you know, election year politics is always going to be a thing in a presidential election year, of course. Um, And that has maybe added to some of the gridlock. Believe it or not, compared to other presidential election years in here, I haven't actually seen it um, that hyped up, to be perfectly honest. You know, it's been there. We had a public lands day bill um, that would have very simply that it's still moving through the process, um, but it would just very simply uh, state uh, a day of the year for everybody to get out and enjoy the outdoors. And that got bogged down in some of that politics that you're talking about. Um, the, the issue was Republicans wanted the bill to reflect these growing frustrations uh, with the federal government and how the federal government regulates lands um, in, across the nation. We, we saw it with that standoff in Oregon mm-hmm. recently. There's a lot of anger and frustration there, and that kind of spilled over. And, you know, that was very clearly from both sides of the aisle political. You know, public lands is always going to be a big issue in Colorado. We love our lands. We love our outdoors. Um, so, you know, it was re- very interesting to see that get politicized. But overall, it hasn't been crazy. I, I think, uh, you know, talking about things, and you're absolutely right, the session is not so much at the midway point about what has been accomplished. It's about what hasn't been accomplished. And the hospital provider fee is a great example of that. But also the construction defects and affordable housing. Those were outlined as major priorities, quite frankly, by both sides of the aisle. And we haven't seen quite really a peep about that yet. Um, We heard yesterday during mid-session availabilities from uh, both uh, Senate Republicans and House Democrats that there is a package that is in the works. Uh, Conversations remain ongoing. Um, It's not looking like um, some of the uh, some of the things that people really had issues with last year, such as uh, mandatory arbitration and stuff will be part of it, but we'll still see. They are discussing potentially creating a new uh legal process that will go out of the courts more administrative to deal with construction defect complaints. And and the question is really, what are they going to do for affordable housing? Because that's where the Democrats come in and say, well, whatever we do on defect reform, there needs to be this affordable housing component. And we heard that uh, they're looking again at tax credits for first-time home buyers and folks who want to put money away into a savings account for houses. So that's going to, I see see that as being, you know, a major issue that has to really get played out in the next uh, couple months. And let me connect some of the dots there. There are those who believe that um, the litigious climate against builders of condos is holding back condo construction, and that that in turn is related to how affordable housing is. Uh, and as as many people believe that there's a connection there, there are others who who say that that's a dubious connection to make between construction defects and affordable housing. But in any case, that will be something to watch for in the second half of session. And I'd like to go back uh, just briefly to the budget situation. So Ed Sealover from the Denver Business Journal, you alluded to the fact that the budget picture might have improved since the last revenue forecast. Um, what can you say about I don't know whether more money will come in or less money is going out. You know, spending is down or something. Well, it's, it's, 
It's, it's less money going out. Uh, one of the main reasons is there are fewer children in the schools than were originally anticipated when uh, this year's budget was put together. And so that's going to be less spending that has to go to that. Um, but, again, it still doesn't close the fact there could be a, a $60, $65 million gap we're looking at. And, and while that seems like an exorbitant number to most people, let's remember this is you know a $27 billion budget, a, a more than $10 billion general fund budget. Budget, which is the portion of the budget that the legislators really have to play with. Um, so there's still a lot of things that, that are in question. Uh, Senator President Cadman has said he wants to find ways to reduce Medicaid spending, which is growing faster than any other part of the budget on an annual basis. Uh, both Governor John Hickenlooper and Speaker Hollinghorst have said, look, we're not cutting back on Medicaid. These people need us. Um, again, so while there is better news than there was when Hickenlooper came out with his October 1st budget predicting lots of cuts. Um, there is still going to be quite a fight in the next week about how to set that budget up after we get the forecast. And that fight is likely to also include uh, transportation and, and how much money should either be spent or cut there, correct? Absolutely. Now, one of the tricky parts about transportation is that there was a funding formula in a 2009 bill that really sets up that transportation is supposed to get about $200 million a year this year and for the next three years going forward, um, unless there is a refund uh, of, uh, of the state's money from crossing the Tabor cap. And so there could be a fight about transportation and, and what you have to do to move things around to just make space in the budget for it. Or there could be uh, this kind of pointing game that says, well, look, if we just pull the hospital provider fee out, we don't have to give money back for a Tabor refund, and boom, we can fund transportation. It's still unknown how much people really want to work to find that transportation money uh, or whether or not they want to just say, look, it's hospital provider fee or nothing. What do you want? All roads lead back to the hospital provider fee, it seems, this session. Uh, Just briefly, gentlemen, there was a lot of talk before the session um, about uh, police reform and uh, potential bills that could address, uh, for instance, background checks when someone applies to be a cop or prohibiting chokeholds. Some of those failed last year. Uh, Is it a different story this year, Peter? It's a very different story this year, and quite frankly, to the surprise of many observers. Um, Last year, you know, tensions were as high as they could have been. On the national level, we saw uh, numerous stories of white police officers and black men, you know, being shot. Um, The tensions were high. There were riots. Um, When the um, hearings took place in the legislature last year, especially around uh, banning the chokehold, dealing with expanding racial profiling, these were very long hearings that saw lots of citizens. There was a real grassroots base that activated and came up and line after line, they told, you know, really heart-wrenching emotional stories of uh, incidents of police brutality and abuse that um, kind of added this emotional emphasis to the conversation. This year, the hearings that took place in the House last week um, on uh, prohibiting chokeholds, expanding racial profiling uh, statutes, um, and and, uh, some other issues um, within the package, didn't see that same sort of emotion. It was more just the stakeholders themselves, law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, civil um, uh, rights groups, Mm. um, the lawmakers themselves. They were the ones who were 
really leading this conversation. What ended up happening is they came to some compromises. They got these bills passed and they got them passed unanimously. So it really looks like the conversation, at least the tone of it, has cooled down a little bit. And it's kind of opening the door for the policy discussion at this point. Peter Marcus of the Durango Herald and Ed Sealover, who covers the Capitol for the Denver Business Journal. They joined us just about the halfway mark of the legislative session. Coming up, the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame inducts 10 new members tomorrow. They are living and dead, and we'll meet one of the living. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow, the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame celebrates 10 new inductees. They include the founder of the Women's Bank as well as a pioneer in sex discrimination law. There are historical figures on the list as well, like Ann Evans, who, among many other things, helped start the Denver Art Museum. We have one of the honorees in our midst today, a champion for abused children. Sherry Schink is an attorney and founder of the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. Uh, Sherry, welcome to the program, and congratulations. Thank you. You've been in Colorado since the 1980s, And I understand you had an epiphany that led you to advocate for children. Will you tell us that story? Sure. Uh, I was sitting in the back of a courtroom. I was just observing, trying to learn, and um, learned the story of a little two-and-a-half-year-old child who had been removed from his birth parents very early in his life for severe neglect and had been with the foster family for over two years Um, and was actually thriving, and he had many difficulties. He was blind. He, He struggled mightily, but because of their love and attention, he was doing really, really well. And the expectation for that hearing was that some permanent decision about his life would be made. But instead what happened is the judge, on his own, without prompting, basically ordered his removal from that family for placement in another foster home, a stranger to this little boy, because the judge believed that the loving relationship that the child enjoyed with his foster family was interfering with the parent's right to have a chance to reunify with this little boy. And the evidence at the hearing was really clear that they would really never be capable. But it wasn't that the judge wanted to put the child in his original home. He just thought that the bond that had been created with the foster parents was strong and that he should be transferred to a different foster family. Exactly. And that was a long time ago when, you know, foster parents were basically urged not to really develop close ties with these children because, in fact, it would interfere with whatever the plan might be. But that's really not any kind of an idea that works for children. And so I was sitting there waiting for somebody to object, for somebody to say something. And the caseworker didn't, and the lawyer for the child didn't, and the parents didn't. And frankly, to this day, I regret that I didn't. Now, as a lawyer, I know better. You don't just stand up and talk in a courtroom. In anyone's courtroom, right. Exactly. But I walked out of there committed to starting an organization that was about justice for kids. And so here it is, 30 years later. Has the culture around foster care evolved since then considerably, do you think? I think it's 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 evolved Yes, very much, except that we still aren't in a place that we need to be. Um, We make a lot of changes over time, 
and and I'm very proud of the things that we've been able to do. But there's this thing about incremental change. I mean, nobody wants to take a bold leap. And what kids need us to do is take a bold leap. Towards what? For example, the we we have the right to take children away because their parents are abusing and neglecting them. But the expectation is that we will give them something better. And unless our system gives them something better, why are we doing this? So better means that a child will have a safe place, a stable place, a loving family, an education, all of the things that every parent wants for their children. And we don't guarantee that to kids. In the foster system. In the foster care system. So many children move from place to place. Many of them have their educations disrupted. Many are separated from their siblings. And and kids basically never get a chance to trust the world in which they're living. And so if you could make one change, what would it be? I mean, I, I imagine that there are foster families listening who think, gosh, we, we do a yeoman's job each day. Many foster parents do a yeoman's job each day, but our expectations for foster parents are pretty low. So just imagine being an eight-year-old who's in a foster home who desperately wants a family, and all of a sudden the family is planning a summer vacation, but you don't get to go because your foster family is going to place you in a respite home, which is basically, you know, an opportunity to give the foster family a break. So when you ask me what one thing to change, it's it's hard to change, you know, one thing and make everything else work. But but there's a there's there's a principle that basically demands that each child is an individual and each child has a right to have his or her needs met. And we have the people in place to do that. Every child has a caseworker, every child has a lawyer. But we don't demand much of that system because it's so under-resourced. And so, you know, we we kind of allow that we do the best we can. And if the best we can do is, is mediocre, so be it. And so there really needs to be a total change of how that system functions and a total understanding that we need to be driven by the needs of these children. And does that responsibility lie with the state then? Is it a question of state funding in your mind? Is it a question of the screening of the families? I think all of those those things are implicated. Yes, it is the state's responsibility. I think the state relies on a lot of private agencies to serve these children and families. And so there's there are partnerships that basically provide um, the services that kids and families need. I think training. I think expectations for foster families. I think screening for foster families. Um, uh, There are a whole range of things that need to change. I'd be very interested in the perceptions of this uh, of foster families themselves, and I'd like to encourage you to go to CPRnews.org and comment at the bottom of this article about uh, the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame and its uh, new inductees, which includes Sherry Schink, who's founder of the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. Sherry, uh, there are more than 140 inductees into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, which was founded in 1985. I wonder if there's someone already in, enshrined that you particularly admire. Absolutely. Marilyn Vanderbilt Atler. Who is she? Marilyn, um, you might remember, was a former Miss America many years ago. Um, she is a lovely, elegant woman who basically 
came out publicly about her own sexual abuse. Um, her father was a very prominent man in the state of Colorado, and there was a lot of controversy surrounding um, that announcement. But she then basically created her own organization, traveled the country, speaking and training and bringing greater awareness about the plight of abused and neglected children. And, and I really believe that unless you have experienced abuse, you can't even imagine, you know, how it feels, how kids react, why they react in the way that they do. And what Marilyn brought to this issue is a person who could basically convey that extraordinary trauma and do it in a way that allowed people to better understand what we as a society need to do for these kids. And perhaps create an environment in which it was okay for an adult survivor of abuse to come forward and say, someone who is close to me and someone who is widely respected in the community could do this, was capable of this. Absolutely. And um, let's see, she was inducted in 96 and is still with us. Yes. yes. Marilyn Van Berber Adler. Yes. And so you'll, you'll be joining her company tomorrow. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That is Sherry Schenk. She's the founder of the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. You can see a list of the other honorees, including an advocate for people with disabilities and a trailblazer in bilingual education at CPRnews.org. We'll be right back with Colorado's smaller footprint this year at South by Southwest in Texas. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The South by Southwest Music Festival has become the place to uh, go for up-and-coming musicians. And the music portion of South by, as it's known, starts today. You are hearing Dressy Bessie, one of the Colorado bands performing at the festival in Austin, Texas. Colorado has put on its own showcase there for the last few years, but this time the state decided not to host such an event. That was a surprise to many local musicians. My colleague Nathan Heffel spoke with CPR arts reporter Corey Jones and open-air host Alicia Sweeney. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Good to be here, Nathan. Corey, explain what this local showcase, the Colorado Music Party, was. Yeah, well, let's start with the official South by Southwest Festival and why that is so notable. Last year, more than 2,200 bands played at official South by Southwest events and more than 33,000 people registered to attend. We're talking media, music fans, industry insiders, hmm. and, and those are big numbers. So because of that, the festival also draws hundreds of other bands and thousands of other music fans who congregate because... Because of unsanctioned events. And these are actually showcases that take place, uh, I guess, on the fringes of the actual festival. South by the Southwest likes to call them guerrilla events. And the Colorado Music Party was one of those events. It was a a big push to take a lot of bands from Colorado and expose them to all the eyes, all the ears at one of the biggest music festivals in the U.S. And last year, it grew to the biggest it's ever been. We're talking five days, five nights, and performances by more than 100 Colorado bands. 
So why is the Colorado Music Party not happening this year? Well, a big part of it is funding. Last year's event was an enormous undertaking, and organizer Danny Grant says the cost of the Colorado Music Party was over budget. In the end, they spent around $250,000. Here's Grant. 50% of our reasoning for not going back was the daunting proposal of how do we raise $250,000 for the showcase plus the deficit that our organization has to operate for the next six months. Now, one important thing to note is the showcase also received public money last year. That includes nearly $50,000 from Colorado Creative Industries and the Colorado Tourism Office alone. Uh, But Grant says that the state wasn't going to put up more funds for this year's showcase. Now, if you ask her, she says it was worth the investment last year, but some critics say that it was just too big and overall that kind of cut in on the impact. I see. Uh, One thing I want to point out, too, the South by Southwest Festival did reach out to them about having an officially sanctioned event. But Grant says that she thought it was best to just kind of regroup and not commit to going right back this year and spend all that money. So did the state say why it wouldn't fund this event? You know, Nathan, it's a little unclear. We did hear back from the Colorado Tourism Office. They said it was a grant that funded this last year. So the Colorado Music Party could have applied for another one for this year's festival. Actually, they uh, instead applied for a grant for another program in the state. And that's kind of where Colorado Creative Industries efforts are leaning to. You know, Governor Hickenlooper has told us that he really wants to push Colorado's music scene outside of the state. And yet lately, They've been doing a lot to help build infrastructure and offer support for bands within Colorado. So it'll be interesting to see if that's kind of the way they lean going forward. And so is this creating any competition? Of course, South by Southwest carries a lot of clout. But are there other festivals maybe attracting Colorado bands? Yeah. So, you know, the clout that South by Southwest carries, it's kind of a catch-22. It generates a lot of attention and activity because it's an industry festival. So it's guaranteed that you're going to get representatives there from the major labels, from the indie labels, from different media sources. But the truth is there are so many bands down there vying for attention. So, yeah, you do have alternatives. Uh, For example, the Treefort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho. 17 bands from Colorado are going there later this month. And some bands just say that they're happier playing the smaller, more intimate festivals that are closer to home. But again, the catch is that that discovery factor just isn't there like it is at South by Southwest. So let's talk about some of the bands uh, that are coming to South by Southwest with Alicia Sweeney of Open Air. Alicia, we heard Denver band Dressy Bessie earlier. The group formed in 1996 and got quite a following. Uh, The band, though, was affected by the recession in 2008 and couldn't afford to tour or even record new music. But now they seem to be uh, enjoying a resurgence. Yeah, I'm calling it a king-sized resurgence, (laughs) which king-sized is the name of their new album. And they are thrilled to be back on the road and to be in Austin for South by Southwest. It's been over a decade since they've performed at the festival, and they're finding a huge response from all over the country from fans who were coming up at, to them at shows over the last month that they've been on the road saying, I never thought I would get to see you live. And th- so they're hoping for a great turnout at South by Southwest this year. Dressy Bessie's going to be there. Uh, there's a, another Colorado band that's also playing this week. That's Denver's The Yoppers. So raise the flag of your heart with your hand. Hear the call and heed the command. Living my life with my head in the sand. Praise the Lord, I'm an American man. You follow the festival every year, and this event holds particular significance for this band. Why is that? 
This is where the band first grew their fan base outside of Colorado. Since 2012, the Yoppers have been going to Austin, Texas during the festival playing the unofficial showcase. But after years of hard work, they've earned a spot at the official showcase. The band was actually discovered at South by Southwest 2014 by renowned label Bloodshot Records. Let's shift musical gears. Uh, We have Sound of Series now, also performing at the festival. This is headed by Karen and Ryan Hover, a husband and wife team out of Fort Collins. And this is not the first time Karen and Ryan have performed at South by Southwest, but they did so previously under a different band name. Isn't that correct? Yeah, they used to be Candy Claws, which I got to mention was actually the first band to come in and be recorded for an open air performance studio session back in 2011. Huh. So as Candy Claws, they performed at the official showcase two times since then. And now this will be their first year for their new group, Sound of Series. And you say you were surprised by another Colorado act appearing at this year's festival. Yes, surprised and also charmed. Colorado Music Hall of Famer Judy Collins, who is well-known worldwide in the folk music world. Shall I remind you, she's 76 years old, but still very young at heart. She's a huge music fan, runs her own label for undiscovered talent. And now in her sixth decade of music, she's going to be performing at South by Southwest with a musician about half her age, Ari Hest, who sings duets with her. And the South by Southwest Music Festival starts today, and you can see a list of all the Colorado bands performing at the event this week at cprnews.org. Corey Jones and Alicia Sweeney, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Nathan Heffel speaking with open air host Alicia Sweeney and CPR arts reporter Corey Jones. Something strange happens when Kitty Miller goes to sleep. She steps into another life in which she's no longer single. Kitty becomes Catherine, a married woman with triplets. The question is, who's real? Kitty? Catherine? Both of them? That's the plot of The Bookseller by Denver author Cynthia Swanson. It comes out in paperback next week. Both storylines take place in the early 1960s in Denver. I spoke with Swanson last year at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, a fitting location because her protagonist, Kitty, owns a bookshop. I asked Cynthia Swanson where the idea for this unusual plot came from. The idea for this novel came to me quite suddenly one day. I was at the gym at the YMCA. I was working out and sweating away on the Stairmaster machine, and my three-year-old was in the child care area, and my older kids were in school. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, how in the world did I end up being somebody who at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning is working out instead of off at the job that I'd had before? I was a, I, I had a freelance career as a marketing and technical writer, and I had a little house that I lived in alone. And my life changed very suddenly when I got married, and I had kids quite quickly within a few years. And it got me to thinking about how our lives do change very quickly on just small moments that could have happened or could have not happened. 
Did you question your own identity for a moment? I did, and that's what made me start thinking about a protagonist who might do that, who might just be thinking sometimes, is this really my life? How did this become my life? And maybe it's not really my life. Maybe I still have that little house somewhere. Hmm. Who knows? Which makes me wonder if your husband has read the book and if he thinks... This is somehow questioning the underpinnings of the relationship and the family and the marriage. I worried about that when he read. He read. He's read every draft of the book, and I very much worried about that when he read the first draft. <laughs> and early on, you kind of wonder about the character in the married life who's sort of pining for the single life. Mm. But your husband uh, took it well. He did. Okay. He did. He's a, he's a very good-humored man. <laughs> and so you were exercising when this idea comes to you. Is that something you immediately write down, make a mental note of? Did you begin writing that same day? Years ago, a friend gave me some advice about writing. She said, if you have a good idea, swallow it. And if it's still good, it'll stick around. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to... If, if it's really good enough, it will stay and it will be in your mind and it will be in your heart and it will keep coming back. And that's exactly what happened. That was maybe right before Christmas. And I didn't do any writing until January, but I kept, it did keep coming back and I kept thinking about it over that holiday season. That could be a terrifying approach because I feel like I've lost really good ideas that I haven't written down. <laughs> then maybe they weren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> So how does it affect the people around Kitty and around Catherine that she or they keep slipping in and out of consciousness, really? Because this change in lives happens usually through sleep. It seems that sleep is the portal. Correct. Sleep is the portal. And so it doesn't really affect people as much quite in her Kitty life because she's single. She lives alone with her cat who doesn't mind whether she's waking up from terrifying dreams or not. In in her Catherine life, her husband is concerned and kind of wondering what's going on and why she's slipping in and out of memory. As we said, this book explores a question I think we've all asked ourselves at one point or another. What would my life be like if I had made different choices? Mm-hmm. What did you learn about that question writing this book? I it it gives you a chance to explore those both big and small. You start thinking about the little things like that, the chance, what if I'd turned left instead of right? What if I'd answered that email instead of sending it to the trash folder? Or what if I'd taken the biology class instead of the history class? Oh, there's all those little things like that that you think about. And I think writing a book like this does make you consider those in your own life and in other people's lives and how those cascade. That's fascinating because, of course, you could drive yourself crazy thinking about all those tiny details. Right. Right. If I hadn't opened that email, would my Mm -hmm. day have transformed? Right, right. You could drive yourself crazy, and I don't think it's worth doing that for anybody. (laughs) I wouldn't advise it, but it does make for good fiction, and it it makes for good consideration of your own life. To quote from the book, there is no such thing as the perfect life. It's not perfect here. It's not perfect there. Have you come to embrace that yourself fully, do you think? I think I have. My husband might have to back me up on that. (laughs) But I do try to embrace that. One of the things I say to my kids a lot is, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And they they know that (laughs) I say that a lot. And it's true. It's it's your life. It's going to turn out the way it's going to turn out. You can't control everything. There's very, very little that you can control. You get what you get. 
And you don't throw a fit. And you don't Anybody throw in the fit. audience is nodding because they've said that to the, that has kids. <laughs> What, said that. Yeah, what's a scenario when you say that to your kids as advice? Um, there's there are meals involved in that. <laughs> there are it's not fair. He got that and I didn't involved in that. <laughs> so there's a lot of scenarios. Is this book autobiographical in any way? No, <laughs> it's not. It, it, other than the idea of those slip moments, and my slip moments are nothing like the the main characters, but. No, otherwise I wouldn't say that it is. And and probably also I get a lot of criticism that the husband character is too perfect. And anybody who knows my husband will tell you that my husband is pretty perfect. So, <laughs> <laughs> But other than that, as far as the circumstances, no, it's not autobiographical. Uh, Catherine's husband, we should say, is Lars. Lars, yes. And, and he, yeah, he is sort of perfect. He's a <laughs> successful architect. He's good looking. He's kind. He's a good father. Mm-hmm. Why write him that way? Because I think she had so many other things going on in that life that were difficult, that if I'd added in a stressful marriage, I think it would have been too much. No matter how bad things got, she knew she had that solid marriage. And, you know, I think about marriage and 50% of marriages fail. Well, that means 50% succeed, which means there must be some good spouses out there. (laughs) So, yeah, maybe he's a little bit unrealistic, but I don't think necessarily. I know some great guys and and some pretty good husbands out there besides my own. One of the difficulties that I think we can give away is that one of Catherine's triplets, Michael, has autism. Correct. And this is at a time when not much is known about autism, certainly not much that's accurate. Right. What are the beliefs about autism at that time, and how does that affect Catherine, your married character? It affects her a great deal. Uh, At that time in history, autism was just beginning to be studied, and not too many people were diagnosed with it. But those that were, there tend to be blame that went on the parents, particularly the mother. A lot of experts in the field thought that autism was due to what they called the refrigerator mother theory, which is that, you know, mothers that were not attached to their children. So she faced an enormous amount of guilt, the character did. I hope that parents of autistic kids today can read the book and and realize that we've come a long way. I mean, there's still a long way to go, but we've come a long way, and at least there's not that kind of guilt on parents, I hope. There should, certainly shouldn't be. And I hope there's that people don't feel that anymore. But you can imagine that a mother who's being blamed for her child's troubles might think about escaping that life or might think about an easier path. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide to include the autism plotline? I think that, again, she needed to have some conflicts in that life. It, 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 it was not a perfect life and that gets uncovered in layers. And when, when the Catherine life begins, she doesn't even realize that she has triplets. She thinks she's got two kids. When she first is going into these dreams of being Catherine, she is introduced to the two other children, a boy and a girl. One is named Mitch, and the other one is named Missy. And and they're adorable, and they're cute, and they're usually really well-behaved. And she thinks, oh, this is what's so hard about having kids. I've got this down pat. And then Michael shows up, and she's completely floored that she didn't even realize that she had this other child. So he's not well enough to be in school. Right. And he's, he's, he's very difficult to manage. Right. And so how did you decide on autism? Was, was that something that had been in your family or that you had had experience with? Without giving away too much, there is someone very dear to me who, um, was, is a, a little bit older than 
Catherine's children and was probably undiagnosed autistic, um, but definitely showed characteristics of that. And I can remember that from my childhood, both this person that I was close to and also her mother and the guilt. The central mystery in this book is which life is real, mm-hmm. one, the other, both. And we're not going to give away that answer, but I do want to ask around it. Did you feel that you had to resolve that? I or- didn't initially think I needed to resolve Sean, Sean is smiling at me. <laughs> because This is your what, editor. <laughs> this, is, this is my editor here in Denver. Because when I first wrote this book, it was much more ambiguous. And that was one of the main suggestions that Shauna made was she said, I think that it's going to be a more satisfying read if there's more of a resolution to that. And so I wrote it that way and tested it out, and I ended up agreeing with her. We are listening back to a conversation with Denver author Cynthia Swanson, recorded last year at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. Her debut novel, set in Denver in the 1960s, is called The Bookseller. It comes out in paperback next week. After a break, the intriguing local history Swanson weaves into the story. Did you know that Walt Disney owned a family fun park in Denver? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my conversation with Denver author Cynthia Swanson. Her debut novel, The Bookseller, comes out in paperback next week. The main character, Kitty, is single and runs a bookshop. Or is her protagonist actually Catherine, a married woman with triplets? Each chapter jumps from one life to the other, and the mystery is, which one is real? Let's talk about the, the setting of the book, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Why, why then? Why isn't this a, a thoroughly contemporary story? I originally started writing this book as a contemporary book. I got about 25% into a first draft, and I realized at that point that it really did not work as a contemporary story. Because a modern-day character, a modern-day Kitty, who was having these dreams of another life, there there are a lot of things that she would do. There's a lot of research available to us now at our fingertips and at our computers. I mean, she would have been Googling things. There would have been a lot of ways that she could have discovered what was going on. I think it added a level of mystery, and it slowed down the pace in that she, if she wanted to do research, she had to do what... Some people in this audience remember doing, and I remember doing, which is go to the library. And she, there's a scene where she does that. She goes to the library, and she asks for the microfilm of a particular time in history that she wants to look back on 10 years ago and see if there'd be some keys that would help her figure out what's going on. She, she's trying to unlock her own mystery, yeah. which, which life is real? Who right, am I? Right, yeah. yeah. Kitty is trying to unlock that, and she's trying to figure out what might have happened. And she, she runs across some things that explain that. So it it would have been a very, very different setting, I think. And she would have been a lot more cynical. You know, it makes me think that in some ways the Internet and technology have ruined aspects of storytelling. You could not have an affair to remember right. today yeah, because absolutely. someone would just call, you know, pick up their iPhone and be right. like, I'm at the top of the, right. <laughs> exactly. of the building. Exactly. You know? <laughs> there are a lot of mischances that would, that would not be mischances anymore. <laughs> yeah. There is more to the, the 1960s setting than just the card catalog system. Um, <laughs> suburbanization mm-hmm, right. is a strong theme in this book. Right. So Kitty, the single character, co-owns a bookstore with a woman named Frida, right. and their bookstore is struggling, Yes, in part because there is uh, what we've come to describe as white flight to the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, malls opening up, and here mm-hmm. they have this little bookstore on Pearl Street, yep. which... 
is a place everyone wants to live now. Right, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I knew Denverites would know exactly what I'm talking about and when they read this book. And it's set in Old South Pearl is where the bookstore is, which when she first started it, they were doing very well. There was a streetcar line that ran along there, so they were getting some streetcar traffic. They were getting people coming in out of work. There was a theater, the Vogue Theater. Uh, so it was, a, it was a fairly successful little commercial area in the 40s and 50s, but then the bus lines came along and the streetcar went away, and it, it started going into a, a lot of decline, and people started moving to the suburbs. One thing that's really fun for local readers is to come across names and places from Denver's past. Uh, the May DNF department store on the 16th Street Mall, of which we have the tower remaining. Right. And get this, the Celebrity Fun Center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, they all remember. <laughs> this is on Colorado Boulevard, owned by Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's roughly where Whole Foods and Home Depot are now. Yep. Yep. And I, I was They're doing... nodding. That means I got it right. Good. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people who remember this place. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And uh, I just did a little research, and I just want to quote a blog called This Used to Be Denver. Uh, Celebrity Sports Center was, quote, one of Walt Disney's great experiments in expansion. Open in 1960 as Celebrity Lanes, Disney offered an 80-lane bowling alley, a massive indoor swimming pool, restaurants, and a health salon. The name was a nod to initial ownership, including Jack Benny, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Burl Ives, Bing Crosby, Art Linkletter, and Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it sound fun? I wish yeah. I was still there. <laughs> More fun than the Home Depot so that's totally. there now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Did this improve your own sense of place, looking up, you know, what Denver looked like in the 60s. Absolutely. It was so fun. That was probably one of my favorite parts of writing this book was doing that research and going down to the the library downtown. I spent a lot of time in the Western history section and looked at old pictures and maps and anything that I could find. I, I did a lot more research there than online. You can find things like that online. And I did a lot of that initially. And usually that would lead me to questions that I felt like I needed to go actually talk to somebody or look at micro microfilm was really good but looking at the newspapers and just seeing the pictures and seeing what was going on especially in very this book takes place on very specific days i had a cheat sheet of every of the actual date that each chapter happened on because i somebody's going to slam me now after they read the book and say you were wrong but i really tried to get everything as close to right as i could so i i looked up the microfilm of what was in the newspaper on particular days that she might have been looking at the newspaper and seeing that. And And so humming in the background, for instance, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, yes, exactly. And the death of Patsy Cline. Right, yep. So for someone who does a fair amount of research for my job, you'd think I'd know this. So there's still microfiche in film. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The machine is faster now. When, when, When Kitty goes down to the library, she has to do the hand crank that probably a lot of us remember from when we were kids. Then it doesn't have that anymore. There's a button and it goes really fast. So you can go past your page Way too quickly. Because not all of <laughs> not all of that has been digitized. Very little of it has, at least at least at our library downtown. But they have um, the post goes back. I don't know, at least a hundred years, and the Rocky goes back pretty far too. So you said you had a cheat sheet. <laughs> yeah. And it was of dates. It was mm-hmm. how did how did that work? Well, at first I didn't have it, and then I realized I needed to make sure I was being accurate about that. So each chapter. 
the book alternates between Kitty and Catherine, her chapter. So in the in the Kitty life, it's October of 1962, and in the Catherine life, it's February and a little bit into March of 63, so a few months later. And so I had to go back and forth between those two times, but I had to make sure that things that were happening were happening accurately. There's a scene where they go to a party and they come home and the babysitter's watching Saturday night at the movies. So I had to look up what movie was actually playing at that, on that oh, particular like, night. Oh, like to the TV guide <laughs> yeah, of, of right, yeah. in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, that I could find online, and I did. Hopefully that's accurate. <laughs> I had to guess. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver author Cynthia Swanson has written The Bookseller, which is out in paperback next week. Finally, we want your questions about curry. We'll speak with the chef behind the little curry shop in Denver. He has a new cookbook. So email your questions or ideas to news at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner.